guys. It's cold, right? It is cold outside, and that's why you guys aren't up here, right? Is that the reason? No, that's not the reason. I don't know why people don't sit up here, but that's okay. I don't take it personal. I'm just going to start wandering out to you guys. This wireless mic has quite the range, so uh, it's all good. It's all good. Well, uh, hey, we're continuing through our journey through the book of Genesis that we've been in for quite some time. And we're tackling a couple of chapters today that honestly, if you were reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm not going to ask how many of you have already given up yet, I'm not going to ask that, I'm not going to put that on you, but uh, if we were reading through the Bible in a year, you probably would not remember these two chapters, right? You probably would not remember that because it is continuing the journey with Joseph and his brothers uh, leading up to the transformative process of reconciliation happening in their lives. Now, these two chapters that we're going to look at are slow moving. Compared to the rest of Genesis, they almost seem like uh, that, that, that slow motion has been hit, and they're kind of playing it out in slow motion uh, in front of us. And I think it's so significant that we don't skip over this. And the reason is, is that because that's how change happens. It's often slow moving and challenging in our own lives. I was uh, sitting in the parking lot of Home Depot with my oldest daughter, Tatum, this week. She's, she's one of the kids that just goes with me everywhere. It's great. And, you know, when you're working on a, a project at Home Depot, you're going like at least four times in a day. They know they're, they're, they're going to get you. So uh, we were sitting in the parking lot, and she was just telling me about her week uh, as we were getting ready to go into the store. Um, and, and how in her week, there was a figure of authority in her life that had used some foul language um, and it wasn't me, and it wasn't her mom, okay? It was neither of us this time, and um, she, shared, uh, she shared the word with me that was used, and, um, and I, like immediately I projected my childhood on her. I was like, that just came out of her. And it was an innocent way. We, we always talk with our kids. There's, they can share anything with us. We, we share that. But I immediately like projected my like ninth and 10th grade years on her. And this, this, was, this was the season uh, of my life. Uh, but let's just say I had a, a mouth, okay? I had a rather expansive vocabulary of words that should not be used by a Christian. And um, I, I can recall coming uh, into this season, I was becoming a believer, and, um, and I had all of this vocabulary that wasn't in line with the gospel, and the change was so difficult. It was so hard. And so what I projected on my daughter was like, oh no, she's going to have a mouth just like I did. What are we going to do with this? And I projected that onto her, but it took years, if I'm honest with you, to retrain my mind and my mouth to follow what I said I believed. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I want that for my kids. I, I don't want them to go through that, that journey. Paul Tripp, um, in, in his book, How People Change, says this, nothing is more obvious than the need for change, and nothing is less obvious than what needs to change or how that change happens. So think about your own life this morning. If you're anything like me, awareness of sin is not one of the problems that you have. That's not one of the things you're walking in here with this morning is just thinking like, I really can't see any sin in my life. You know, the actual, so really what's the problem, right? If we see what the sin is, why can't we change it? We have a heart, a desire to change. Why is it not changing? 
The actual ability to change or to transform into that new creation that Jesus says we, we have and are becoming takes, often takes a long, long time. And that's why Genesis 43 and 44 are so important for your life today, because this is what it really looks like when God changes you. It's rarely this miraculous, just kind of a drop of a hat, all of a sudden transformation. It's often an arduous journey to transfer to transformation with the Holy Spirit meeting you each step of the way. When we experience the devastating effects of sin and those waves wash over us and we get often drawn to despair, it can feel hopeless, especially if you've walked with Jesus for a long time and you struggle with the same things for a long time. It can feel hopeless. And that's why the covenantal promise of God must be remembered this morning. Because when God pursued lost humanity initially, he promised to give us way more than we thought we needed, right? I mean, we thought we needed just a second chance. Just give Adam a second chance in the garden is what we wish. He won't eat it this time, I promise. We thought we needed less temptation. If I just had less temptation, I wouldn't sin. But what we actually need is Jesus resurrecting us, living among us, and working through us. Amen? That's what we need. So I, I need to remind you this morning of the pathway of transformation in the scriptures, especially the book of Genesis. So there's this, theologically speaking, theologians call this, there's this redempt, uh, redemptive historical narrative that is this arc, this kind of story arc of the Bible that we see. And we see it begin to play out in the book of Genesis. And Genesis 43 and Genesis 44 will be chapters that you skip over every time if you don't understand this, if you don't understand what God is doing through people. So Adam sins in the garden, and uh, the Lord meets him, um, and, and Adam says, uh, and he says to Adam, even though there's going to be these massive consequences, these repercussions, death is going to enter into the world, but it will not last forever. Change will come, but its source will be from me and not from you, is what the Lord essentially shares with Adam. Now, eventually what he says is that one will come from his family, of his offspring, that will be able to, to carry the ability to actually enact change, not just hope for it. And it will crush the head of the serpent who's deceived the world. Genesis 3.15 says it like this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he says to Eve. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He meaning the offspring. He meaning the lineage of Abraham. The lineage of Judah. The lineage of... Jesus himself. So, so after, after this happens in Genesis 3, if you go to the, the end of Genesis 3, I don't have time to dig quite into it today because it'll be a whole other sermon, but at the end of Genesis 3, there's this really bizarre encounter, this really strange thing that, that happens in Genesis 3 is that the Lord banishes them from the Garden of Eden, Eden and he puts, two, he puts two angels outside to basically guard the gate so they cannot go back into the garden. But why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because they could never again flourish in Eden. It wasn't possible for them. Only death existed for them in Eden. They could never again flourish by looking to their own ability to follow God and obey him like they could in that garden before sin entered the world. Humanity 
would always and forever from that point forward need a savior to keep us in fellowship with the Father forever. Now, if we pause here for a second, functionally speaking, uh, it is in our human nature to attempt to um, find this type of wholeness with, without Jesus. That, that's why we sin. That's why you sin. That's why sin exists in your life is because you are looking for wholeness. You are looking for satisfaction. You are looking for fulfillment. You are looking to flourish apart from Jesus. That's why we sin. And we, and we, we, we do that even as believers because we, we have to be reminded that Jesus is enough for us. And you know what it's like, functionally speaking? It's like, it's like standing outside the Garden of Eden and trying to claw ourselves back in to get in those gates again. That, that's what it's like when we choose to sin because we're choosing to go about it on our own way. Yet God in his grace has provided a new and living way to flourish in the family of God through Christ. And he does this through a family. So, so the Lord further, explain, uh, further expands and clarifies this promise that he, that he mentions in Genesis 3 right after sin enters the world about how humanity will conquer this bondage to sin. And, and it's through becoming the family of God. So Abraham, who's Joseph's great-grandfather, who's Jacob's grandfather, you know, and Isaac's dad is met by, you know, what he's, what, when he's going about his business. And he's not, he's not even, Abraham's not even aware that he's lost initially. We don't have any indications of that. He just knows that God has met him in such a powerful way that he has to obey him. So Genesis 12 and 17, let me just read just a couple of verses because this is so key for us understanding and getting the most out of Genesis 43 this morning. Here's, here's the way the Lord meets Abraham after this promise from Genesis 3 comes. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you, Abraham, and I will make you, Abraham, I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other, way, in other words, I'm, I'm doing a new thing, right? Eden, Eden is no more. I'm doing a new thing in this world. Genesis 17 picks back up. He, he meets him again, expands this covenantal promise, gives a sign. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring or your family after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, a covenant that does not end, in other words, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, in the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. See, God meets Abram, and he says, you're going to be mine forever. What happened in the garden will not define the story of my creation forever. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will become my family, and I will use your family, he says, to bring this covenant of grace to this new way of living to the world. And we have to remember this. Why? Why do we have to remember this? Because at present time in Genesis 43 and 44, there is not a likely candidate for who this promise is gonna go through. 
this promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Who's next? Who do you think would be next by looking at what we've studied so far in Genesis? Joseph, right? We think it will be Joseph. Joseph is the clear answer. Joseph is the one who's remained faithful. Sure, he was a little bratty, he was a little arrogant, but it should be Joseph. He looks the part, church. Matthew chapter one, verses one through three says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, we got that. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So the one that the promise will go through is Judah. But the last time we looked at what Judah was up to in the book of Genesis, well, let's just say he was the one that suggested they sell Joseph into slavery. So this is our guy, Jesus, right? This is our guy? Something has to change in Judah's life for him to be the one that the promised Messiah comes through that eventually gives us as the church victory over sin. That's why Genesis 43 and 44 are so significant. If it was about Joseph, we'd be good to go but it was about Judah. Judah. He's the one that leaves his family, goes off into the land of Canaan like a prodigal, takes a Canaanite wife, has these two wicked boys. The scriptures say that the Lord put them to death. They were so wicked. One of them, you know, he dies, and then he ends up accidentally mistaking his daughter-in-law for a prostitute and sleeps with her and has a child. You know who that child is? Perez, by Tamar, his daughter-in-law. This is our guy, Jesus? You know, isn't that how God works, though? God takes the things you least expect by his grace, and he transforms the narrative. He transforms the story. That doesn't mean that the other brothers aren't believers. He just chooses Judah. The change that happens in Judah's life is a change of heart before it is a change of behavior. We're gonna see the change of behavior today, but I wanna remind you of the change of heart. You see, when that whole instance came up with Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he broke. I don't know if you remember when we preached this, but Genesis 38, 26 says this. Judah identified them and said, and this is when he gets caught, basically, right? She, meaning Tamar, is more righteous than I am. You know, the, the, the child of Jacob. She is more righteous than I am, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah. So it was the custom of the day to take care of the family, and he withheld that right. You see, what we see, and this is the big thing here, is that God is on the move in Judah's life, and he has to be on the move in Judah's life for Judah to be the one that Jesus comes through, because he has to be a believer, and we don't have any evidence of that until now. Our big idea of where we're going today is this. You guys are thinking we're just now getting to the big idea. Hey, I had to catch you up here. God saves the world through transforming a family. And he brings you and I into that family through transforming us in Christ. It just ma- this just makes me wonder, church, what God might be up to in our own families and in our church family if guys like Judah can be the one that Jesus uses. 
So we're going to look at three traces of transformation that we see, and I'm not going to read all of Genesis 43 and 44, but I would encourage you to. Um, Three real themes that we see that are evidences that Judah's heart has been changed and that God is on the move in the family. And the, the three kind of things that we see here are we see a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to surrender, and the evidence of integrity happening in their life. So let's pick up looking at sacrifice here in Genesis 43. We're going to start in uh, verse 1 here. So we're picking back up here. If you remember, to give you context, uh, the boys had come home uh, from Egypt. They brought grain home to dad, taking care of the family, severe famine in the land. The only issue was they had to leave Simeon back in Egypt. So they leave Simeon back in Egypt, and Joseph says, they still don't know who Joseph is, is the second in command in Egypt. Joseph says, listen, you bring your youngest brother back, bring him back with you, and I'll give you more grain, and I'll release Simeon. The only problem is, Joseph is daddy's prized possession. The boys know this ain't happening in his current state. That's where we pick up, all right? So here we go. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought, uh, brought from Egypt, their father, said, Jacob, said to them, go again, buy us a little food. We're hungry. But Judah, key word here, he's on the move. Judah said to him, Judah hadn't been a leader in the family until this point. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother Benjamin is with you. And if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. It's pretty cut and dry. Joseph says, Benjamin has to come or you're not eating. So this massive problem in Jacob's family is that everyone's hungry, right? And Joseph wants reconciliation. The brothers are changing. Every day they're getting closer and closer to running out of grain. You know, Simeon's in custody in Egypt, and Joseph has demanded that they stay. The one way they get more grain is bringing Benjamin back. So here's where we pick up, verse 8. Judah, still taking the chair leader here. He says to Israel, now that's a key, key word right there, okay? We don't hear Jacob called by his covenantal name often before this, do we? You remember the, the time that he wrestled with God in Genesis 32? And God, God touched his hip and he walked with the limp. And he says, your name's not gonna be Jacob the deceiver anymore. No, it's going to be Israel, which means struggles with God. You see, so Moses notes that we're gonna call him by his covenantal name here because he's acting like a covenantal child. That's key right there, okay? So let's keep going here. He says, uh, Judah says to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go down, and and we may live and not die. But we and you and also our little ones, in in other words, we're going to take everybody, all right? Our kids, everybody. And and Judah says to him, I will be the pledge of safety. I'm going to put my life on the line, Dad. From my hand, you shall require him. And if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we wouldn't have we would have returned twice. In other words, if we wouldn't have kind of been beaten around the bush here, we would already got this done. Okay, so this is different, all right? If you remember either a chapter or two ago, Reuben made an offer that was similar to this. Reuben is the oldest son, okay? Reuben made an offer, and Reuben's offer was this. Hey, Dad, I'll give up both boys, all right? I'll put both boys as a pledge, not my own life, but I'll put both of my boys up for a pledge that if, you know, I don't bring Benjamin back, you can have both of them, all right? How does that make you feel as his boys, right? I mean, that's, that can't be good. 
But Jacob doesn't even entertain the idea. You can go back and read this. But this time, Judah's different. Judah's changing. His heart has been transformed. This time, Judah doesn't offer his kids. Who does he offer? Himself. You see the difference? Judah doesn't say, hey, you can just have my kids. He says, I myself will be the pledge for Benjamin if I can't bring him back. Now, the family, the family, uh, you know, the order of the family that would have kind of typically gone and, you know, down would have been Reuben. He was the oldest. Levi and Simeon were the next oldest, and then Judah. So, you know, why does, why does Israel not choose Reuben? Well, because we know why Reuben, but Levi or Simeon. You remember that little thing that Levi and Simeon did back when their sister was raped? Remember that? When they murdered a whole city? I don't know. Maybe that disqualified them. I don't know. You can, you, can, uh, you can interpret that how you want to, but maybe that's the case there. All we know is that Judah is the one. Judah is the one that is changing. He's the one that is leading. Judah's offer to his father involves self-sacrifice because that's what happens when your heart is transformed is that it's a different kind of love that you offer the Lord and one another. The shape of the, the type of love that comes from God that Judah is uh, evidencing here, if I can say that, is called, you know, in the New Testament, we would call this agape love. It's the, it's the kind of love that isn't just sensual, it's not just brotherly love, but it's self-sacrificing love. It's the love that comes from God. In the Hebrew, we would call it hesed love, this covenantal keeping love where God says, I'll do all of the work, you'll get all of the benefit. This is the kind of love that flows from God. This is the kind of love that flows from God's people. It's a love that finds its deepest satisfaction in being so filled with the love from God that it becomes a servant to others. We're all born with the desire to be loved and to love, but our sin has led to the pursuit of a self-focused, costless love. One where we sacrifice others instead of ourselves. One where we look more like Reuben than we look like Judah. Judah is starting to show us Jesus, isn't he? He will continue to do so in Genesis 44. Here's what Jesus said about this kind of love in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 13. He says this, make no mistake, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this is what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. He's laid down his life, and when we receive by faith, what he, has, what he has bought for us, our ransom from sin, we become friends of God. Jesus has laid down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus has done for each and every one of his brothers and sisters. And when we've been tempted to be Reuben, you know, Reuben our way into love, he gives us Judah. When we've been tempted to get love at no cost, at no risk to us, Jesus risks it all. All of his reputation, all of his care, all of his life so that you could know an otherworldly love in this world. 
That's what Christ has done for us. That's what Christ, even before he ever steps foot on the earth, is beginning to do in Judah's life. And it seems like a love that's too good to be true, one that requires nothing yet gives everything. And it's in the space of experiencing the deepest love imaginable that God has given to us that Jesus tells us how he's gonna transform the world. Remember, there's this whole family piece, this lineage piece that we're now included into as the family God. He says, here's here's how I'm gonna change the world. He goes on in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you. In other words, everything left of that page that says New Testament in your Bible Everything in the Older Testament, it all hangs on this, Jesus says. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That's the whole thing, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus wants to define the way that he's loved us. So just as he has loved us, we are commanded to love one another. And he says this, by this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. Church, so often we say we have experienced the love of Jesus, yet we extend the love of the world to others, one that is of no cost to us. We say we're being changed like Judah, but we offer Reuben to the world. Jesus says that we're called to love just as he loved us. That means there's a certain quality to the type of love that exists in the family of God together. My question to you is this, is as you take inventory over the interactions that you maybe had this week, this month, this year, what is the quality of your love in those interactions? What is it that's being extended to others that in and of itself is telling the story of who we belong to? Have you considered that the quality of the love that you give is a direct result of the quality of love that you have received? Because Jesus says, as he's loved us, we love one another. So when we love with this kind of Reuben, you know, kind of love, what we're we're experiencing is that that's how God loves us. And that's just simply not the case. So what would it look like to let Jesus live, let you know, Judah, Jesus live, and let Reuben die in you today? Is there, is there something that seems just so costly that you can't enter into? You don't quite have the strength to love someone that deeply. You know, is there something that gives you fear, gives you pause as you think about loving the way that Jesus loves in this world? Just encourage you to explore that this week, if the Lord's speaking to you through that. Now, the second thing is we continue to look in this, this narrative, this narrative of, of how God is changing this family as we see surrender. So Jacob or Israel is going to enter into the picture again here. In Genesis 43, verse 11, the scriptures say this, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, if this thing about Benjamin has to be the way, he said, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man. He's getting generous all of a sudden, right? A little balm, a little honey, a little gum, a little myrrh, a little pistachio nuts. I knew these things had to be divine, right? Pistachio, they're great. Um, Almonds, you know, take double the money with you. That's interesting. Carry back with you 
the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. You remember Joseph had planted that money back in their sacks to kind of test them. And he says, go to the man again. And then verse 14 shows what God is doing in Israel's life. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. See, Jacob's changing. He's living less like that old deceiver. You know, the one that like glued hair on his arms and stole the birthright and all that kind of mess. He's living less like that and more like a child of God. Jacob clung to Joseph for his identity, right? He clung to him for 17 years until his brother sold him into slavery. And then he had this kind of replacement as he grieved. There was this younger son, Benjamin, that was by his favorite wife, Rachel, as well, youngest boy, Benjamin, that was now his prized possession, the love of his life. And he takes this good thing in having a son, and he makes it this ultimate thing in his life. He made a vow to himself, in essence. No one will take Benjamin from me. He's the joy of my life, and I will ensure this will never happen, and I'm never changing my mind. And he lives with this closed fist with his son, Benjamin, not an open hand when it comes to trusting God with his boy. Jacob's mentality up until this point had been this. Hey, we're going to white-knuckle it into the promised land. Got any white-knucklers in here? You are just terrified of being out of control. And and when, when you feel out of control, you just double down and you grip harder. Hey, Jacob can totally relate, all right? He can totally relate with you. And I wish I could tell you it didn't feel familiar, but it feels very familiar to me. When we feel a sense of loss or anticipated grief, when our plans are blown up by Jesus, we don't say, Jesus, take the wheel. We say, Jesus, I'm going to take the wheel back, right? That's what we do. We take it back and we try to stay in control, but it's just a facade. It's not real. But what we see happening is that God is meeting Jacob in his struggle, and he's changing him into the man Israel that he is called to become as the covenantal head of these 12 tribes. And Jacob starts living out of his new identity in the Lord. And it it happens because he has to understand that his ability to keep Benjamin was just a facade because it's only the Lord that is the keeper and the comforter of souls. I think this can apply in a lot of ways in our own lives. It can apply the same. Honestly, in my life, it can apply the exact same way that it did in Jacob's life, right? If you have children and you try to control them, you know, you, you try to, to determine the parameters in such a strict way that you convince yourself that, that they're under control and you've kind of got them within your, in your reach. And then all of a sudden, the first moment of freedom they get, they're gone. What would it look like for us to trust God with our kids? I'm not talking about being reckless, but to know that the real grace of God transforming our children is so much more powerful than the facade of transformation that exists within our own control. What else? I mean, what, what, what is it that you hold on to, that you grip? What is your Benjamin? Because we've all got him, church. When it was up to Jacob, he could never trust God with this 
most beloved son, but we see him changing. And we see him changing because he's reflecting Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 32? He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? You see, this is the shape of what happens when you surrender to the Lord. And we can only surrender when we see that God himself has surrendered his son up, his perfect spotless son for your sinful blemished life. He surrendered him for you so that you could be made whole, so that you could flourish. And so what, he, what Paul says here is like, like, you learn to trust the Lord with your life by looking at how he entrusted his son for your salvation. And if you have a hard time and you're doubling down and you're white knuckling whatever it is in your life, whatever it is that you are just frantically checking on your phone, you know, I don't know what that is for you. I've got a whole list of things that I do that with. You've got yours too. He's saying if that is a problem for you, that facade of control, you've got to go back and see what God did for you. You've got to keep going back to it until it's enough. Do you see Jesus as enough to surrender? We see, we see Israel surrendering his son. What would it look like for you to surrender in light of this promise instead of in light of your own strength? The last thing that we see uh, is this right here. We see this integrity that uh, is shaping um, the lives of the whole family. Um, throughout this whole interaction, you know, I can't go into a ton of detail because of the time here, but I just want to note what's happening in Joseph's life. Joseph is tiptoeing toward his brothers in each and every encounter, isn't he? He's getting a little closer. He's trusting them a little more. And he's seeking to be wise, like we talked about last week, and entrusting his heart to these brothers that have hurt him so deeply. And so in this encounter, when the brothers show back up in Egypt, and they have Benjamin this time, he invites them into his house for a meal. He's getting closer and closer to them. And before he comes in to dine with them, these guys are freaking out because they don't know what he's gonna do. He's got all the power in the world to them. And up until this point, they look like thieves. And here they are back hungry, begging for more, even though it appears like they stole from their brother. So what we see is that there is an integrity that is exhibited through their lives in the face of the appearance of evil. And the appearance of evil kind of goes two ways. It's with the money, but it's also with this cup in Genesis 44. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. Genesis 43, 18 through 23. So the men, the boys, were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and cease our donkeys. Worst news imaginable. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, okay? This is the God's honest truth here. And when we came to the lodging place after we left, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put this money in our sacks. And the servant replied, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So when faced with this moral dilemma, um, 
you know, I told y'all about my moral dilemma about the Braves parking. Well, I'm not going to go back into that. I've heard that's been real helpful for some of you, though. Um, you know, they lied about Joseph. And let's be honest, if you lie about one, one thing, you probably lie about a lot of things. So they probably lied about a lot of things in their life. But this time, Judah seems to have better footing in the Lord than he did before. You know, how, how much, to, and you see, like, they're making the worst case scenario. They're like, it, it's, it's going to be, in their minds, they're thinking it's going to be more costly to tell the truth and be entrusted to these Egyptians um, uh, than to not do that. But there's something of integrity that's moving in their heart, something of their care and their well-being that they're entrusting to the Lord and moving about in his ways, telling the truth, telling the truth even though it looks like they're all liars, and so the solution, you know, when you look at this, the, the solution to this temptation, to this discouraged and cynical assumption, um, assumption-driven mentality is this. Because we all do the same thing. We all assume the worst about other people, especially when there's something going on. This is why if you get into a conflict with someone and they don't respond to your text immediately and you see those little dots, you just freak out. I mean, you just think that they're going to leave your life. They're going to cancel you forever. Am I right? You see those dots and you think, oh man, here we go. If That's if you're an iPhone user, by the way, sorry. Not endorsing that. But um, you know what it is, that distance, whenever a conflict occurs, you just assume the worst. These guys are no different. But in, in the face of those moments when you're tempted to assume the worst about other people when you really don't know the answer, the answer is courageous integrity no matter what the cost is. That it is far better to have integrity, even though it might cost you everything, than to go about the world's ways and be a deceiver. And we see that happening in both of these instances here. Here's the second thing we see. There's this, this cup. So Joseph gives them one last test before they're reconciled. It's beautiful. It comes in verse uh, chapter 44. And I'll read it to you real quick before I land the plane here. Um, so as they leave the meal, he commanded the steward of his house. He said, hey, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money back in the mouth of their sack. At least they'll know what's coming this time. And he says, oh, by the way, also put my cup, the silver cup, the valuable cup, and put it in the, the mouth of the sack of the youngest. And who was the youngest? Benjamin, right? Put it in his sack uh, with his money for the grain. And, and they did as Joseph told them. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, hey, go get them. And uh, follow up after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Oh man, isn't that a phrase that echoes throughout half of Genesis? Is not this from my Lord and by this that he practices divination, you've done evil in doing this. So Joseph's calling for one final test. He's saying, let me just see if they'll give Benjamin up. You know, see, see what'll happen here. Let's see what happens. Let's see, let's see if the same thing that happened to me will happen to Benjamin, my brother that I love deeply. And so here's what happens. Verse 12. And he searched, beginning with the eldest, Joseph did, and and with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. They returned back to Egypt. Verse 30, picking up here. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, 
and the boy is not with us, Judah says. Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, and as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. In other words, it'll be unbearable pain. For your servant became a pledge. He's talking, Judah's talking about himself. I, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please your servant and let me remain instead of Benjamin. And let the boy go back with his brothers. Verse 34, how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This thing's all at the breaking point, right? This thing is just, it's ratcheted up real tight. And Joseph has wisely done this. He wants to see transformation, the evidence of change in his brother's life. And they are changing. And it's slow moving. And it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. But they're changing. They're being transformed by God. Israel is relating to God, trusting Benjamin into his care. Judah, self-sacrificially living, leading the charge with integrity. All evidence that God is alive. Traces of transformation. Do you think that's possible for your life? Maybe, maybe you're not like me, and maybe you think, yeah, I see God changing my life every day. I don't really struggle with sin. I'll say you're a liar, but that's okay. We won't go there today. But there are parts in our lives that we think, God, will that ever change? Paul felt that way, right? God, please deliver me from this body of death, right? Nothing is more obvious than our need for change in our life, and nothing is less obvious than how to change. We see Judah and Israel changing, transforming in these two chapters. We see sacrifice, surrender, and integrity are beginning to replace jealousy and selfishness and deception. It's miraculous, and it's happening because the Lord is doing the work. And the Lord has promised to change the world by grafting us into that same family that's being transformed by a guy that slept with his daughter-in-law, thought she was a prostitute. That's how powerful God's grace is, all right? And I want to close with this verse, Philippians 1.6. It's a verse that, that, that is so valuable to me when I wonder if I'm ever, ever, ever going to look more like Jesus. Scriptures say this. I'm sure of this. Paul spoke to this church in Philippi, and he said, He who began a good work in you, Christian, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the things in your life that you think will never change, God is already working on. He's already working through. And so as you struggle, just like the family of God has always struggled as we're grafted into this family and the Lord is, he's using our experience of his love to change the world, never forget this. Never forget that God will complete what he started. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.